Romans chapter 10, beginning in verse 1, it says, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. In chapter 10, Paul surveys Israel's present spiritual condition and continues to describe their present rejection and their misguided measures to pursue righteousness. I I have a note in my Bible under verse 3 which says, quote, the word righteousness here and in the passages carrying a marginal reference to this verse alludes to legal righteousness or self-righteousness. The futile effort of man to work out under law a character which God can approve. In other words, it's the kind of righteousness that only can come from a judicial pronouncement of acceptance on the part of God on the basis of what Christ has done. Paul continues to contrast works righteousness, which comes from trusting and obeying law, and faith righteousness, which comes from believing and trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul sorrows over the fact that the Jews, by and large, would not submit to faith righteousness. Their religious and racial pride wouldn't allow it. The Jewish people and the Jewish nation, by and large, rejected Christ and clung to the law, not perceiving Or believing that Jesus Christ was the very one who was the object, the sum and the substance, the fruition and the fulfillment of the law. And that Jesus on the cross of Calvary would end the reign of the Mosaic law. On the cross of Christ, God made the decision that God's dealings with human beings would be on the basis Not of the covenant of the law, but it would be on the basis of faith in Christ and the sacrifice of Christ. So in this chapter, Paul will cite the reasons for Israel's rejection in verses 1 through 13. He will provide the remedy for that rejection in verses 14 through 17. And then he will write about and talk about the results of that rejection in verses 18 through 21. 
The results, by and large, were that God would turn to the Gentiles, that he would take from the Gentiles a people for his name, and it should come as no surprise, since God promised the Jewish people in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 32, verse 21, that God would, in fact, use the Gentiles one day. That he would use them in such a way to provoke Israel, that is the Jews, to jealousy in Isaiah chapter 65 verses 1 and 2. Israel's rejection would play a major role in the redemption and the forgiveness and the reconciliation of the nations of the world. Paul does not hate the Jews or call on Gentiles to despise the Jews. Such anti-Semitism and hollow hatred has no place in the Christian's heart or in the Christian church or in the church of Jesus Christ. We have a deep, abiding, profound, Respect for Jewish people and the Jewish heritage. But Paul, Paul, ever the evangelist, pleads and presents salvation in the very first verse. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. And in the very statement, Paul assumes that they're not saved. Paul loves the Jewish people. The expression, my heart's desire, it comes from a Greek expression which is eudokia or eudokia. It's a a, a word that speaks of blessing and A wish for happiness. It pictures a longing, a yearning, a craving. The idea being the only thing that's going to quench the burning passion of his heart is that the Jewish people embrace a total acceptance of the Jewish Messiah. Both Paul's desire and Paul's prayer imply a possibility that Israel can be saved and that the present rejection of Jesus Christ need not be a permanent rejection, that the door of salvation remains open. Paul's point, rejection now doesn't mean rejection forever. And the problem of Israel's rejection doesn't lie in God withholding grace, God withholding mercy, God withholding the method of salvation. None of that is true. It lies in Israel's rejection of the grace. The Lord God freely offers Jesus Christ. And the problem was the sinful refusal to accept God's plan of salvation in Christ. But here's the idea. That we can believe and we can pray for their salvation. And immediately it should cause each and every one of you 
in your own heart and in your own mind to begin to think about. There's someone that you know. There's someone that you love. There's someone that you care about. There's someone that you grew up with. There is a nation perhaps that you identify with. There is a community and a family that you grew up in. Maybe it was even a religious tradition. And people often become, they become deeply offended when we tell them that we're praying for them, that we're praying for their salvation. There is a bitterness and a darkness that wells up inside of them because what they hear is, you don't really believe that I am saved. We should pray for the salvation of the Jewish people. Why? Think about what Paul is saying. Think about his love and think about his care for them. Why do we pray for the Jewish people? Because we think about the contribution that the Jewish people have made to the planet earth and to the world. Much of what is good and much of what is decent and what, much of, of what we rely on and embrace comes from the Jewish people. What, you might ask? Well, the revelation of God's word. There, it, without the Jewish people, there is no Bible. There are no prophets. There is no moral code of conduct. There are no promises of God. There is no true religion. And there is no Lord Jesus Christ. For all of those reasons we pray. And when Jesus spoke to the Samaritan woman at the well, he said who happened to be, remember the Samaritans were a, a mixed race of people who embraced much of Judaism but rejected some and tried to figure out a way to have a right relationship with God apart from the temple and apart from the sacrifice and apart from the revelation. And Jesus said in John four twenty two, you Samaritans know so little about the one you worship while we Jews know all about him for salvation comes through the Jews. Paul's point comes from a heart rooted and grounded in love. And he continues to intercede. He prays for the redemption and the salvation of the Jewish people. And the point in part becomes it's hard to turn deaf ears to that kind of a caring heart. If you're wondering if it's okay. To cry yourself to sleep at night because you think about someone that you grew up with, someone that you love, someone that you care about, and you can't even begin to accept that they might go to hell because of their refusal and their rejection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you begin to pray for them and you begin to intercede for them and you begin to beg God like I just prayed to cause the dark scales to drop from their eyes and their heart to open as they realize their circumstances. Paul is eager to pray for his loved ones. Are you? 
Paul, by the way, isn't asking the Jewish people to cease to be Jews or to change some ideas or even convert them from one religion to another. Paul doesn't even for a moment see himself as setting aside Judaism or the law of Moses. What he sees is that the sacrifice of Jesus and the cross of Christ is the fulfillment of everything that God has been trying to tell the Jewish people and the world. You see, for the person who says, you Christians, you, you have no right You have no right to get rid of a person's religion. We don't claim to get rid of anybody's religion. What we claim is that the basis of forgiveness and the basis of salvation and the basis of redemption and the basis of reconciliation is Jesus. This is God's doing. This isn't my doing. This isn't Paul's doing. People didn't just sit around and say, hey, let's just figure out a way to get rid of religion. God said, the way that I am going to work with human beings is in a way that is going to make a provision for them to be forgiven. What could be more important? We pray for our family and our friends. We pray for their deliverance from the power of darkness. And the Bible teaches that the lost are dead in trespass and sin. And those who are spiritually dead have have a kind of a lingering fear of God. They are lost. In Ephesians chapter 2 verse 12, Paul says that the lost are without Christ and without hope and without God in this world. And sometimes those unpleasant facts are so burdensome that we want to figure out a way not to have to think about it or not to have to care about it. You see, it's okay for you to care. And it is necessary for you to pray. And so look what Paul does. In verse 2 he says, For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. It's okay to pray for people, but I'm going to suggest to you that it's not just Paul praying, but Paul is also prepared to act. He's willing to expose the lie. The lie that everything is just fine apart from God, apart from Christ, apart from the gospel. That includes exposing the lie that our love, what our loved ones believe. And a willingness to tell them the truth about Jesus. Look what Paul says. I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God. Paul doesn't deny the Jewish people their zeal for God. And you probably don't deny many people that you may have known and grown up with. Whatever religious tradition. They have a zeal for God. They go to some sort of church or synagogue. They go to some temple. They have some sort of book. They even do good deeds. 
Paul is willing to acknowledge that much, much of what the Jews believed and understood about God was correct. And it's quite possible that the people that you love and that you care about, that there's some things about God that that they possibly do understand and that are quite correct. Their zeal was not directed by a full and correct knowledge. So when Paul says, for I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but but not according to knowledge, there's two words that are translated typically knowledge in the Greek language, gnosis, which is a catch-all term for knowledge, and epinosis or epigenosis. Here, when Paul says, but not according to knowledge, he's talking about a full, complete, informed knowledge. The Jewish people knew some things about God, but their knowledge was incomplete. And therefore incorrect. Their zeal was void of a true understanding. A genuine knowledge of Jesus. And this is true. Of many groups and many people. They have a zeal for their beliefs. Again, Walter Martin suggested that they're willing to do. They are willing to do for a lie what Christians are unwilling to do for the truth. They're willing to go door to door. They're willing to knock on, their, on your door. They're willing to talk to you. They're willing to say, hey, do you, do you realize the end of the world is coming? And have you seen my Awake magazine? And you know that there's something wrong. You know that there's something not quite right. Who are you again? We're Jehovah's Witnesses. Why do you call yourself Jehovah's Witnesses? Because we are witnesses of Jehovah. Well, what do you believe about Jesus? We believe he's the Archangel Michael. Why do you believe that? Well, because we deny that he is God in the flesh, like Trinitarians we believe. We, we deny that he died on a cross, but he died on a stake. We deny that he rose physically from the dead, but as a gaseous spirit. We, we deny what, what you have been taught as Bible-believing Christians, that you're saved by grace through faith. As a matter of fact, you're not saved by grace through faith. You have to join us, and you have to go door to door, and you have to be conscientious. And you have to care deeply about what the Watchtower and Track Society say. And they have a zeal. They have a, trust me, I, I don't think that they're motivated because they go, hey, we're voted, we're motivated by lies and we want to change all of the Christians into Jehovah's Witnesses because we believe that, that they're, they're simply wrong and we're right. I believe that most Jehovah's Witnesses and most Mormons and most people who are involved in cult have a deep desire because they believe that you are fundamentally wrong and they're trying to persuade you. But what they're trying to persuade you to do is to follow a road of darkness, away from God, away from Christ, away from salvation through faith alone in Christ alone. We pray for their deliverance. Paul is willing to acknowledge that the Jewish people have a zeal 
but an incomplete knowledge and an incorrect knowledge is insufficient to save. Especially when the knowledge is the focus on the identity, the mission, and the message of Jesus Christ. Rejection of Jesus as Messiah meant that that they couldn't experience forgiveness of sin. They couldn't experience acceptance by God. They couldn't experience regeneration by the Holy Spirit. Why would Paul characterize their knowledge as incomplete? Well, he answers that very question in verse 3. In verse 3, he says, For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. Again, the reference alludes to that righteousness of God which is judicially reckoned to all who believe on the Lordship of Jesus Christ. In other words, belief, faith, confidence in Jesus Christ renders a not guilty verdict from the God of heaven. And so the three reasons that Paul lists, number one, the Jewish people were ignorant of God's righteousness. And again, for the Jewish person or the person who's grown up in a religious tradition and they go, what are you saying? How could you possibly accuse us of not understanding God's righteousness? Well, what does that mean? Paul's point is it means that they failed to truly appreciate the nature of God. And that nature included the righteousness of God that demands righteousness, but provides righteousness. Apart from self-righteousness. And as a consequence, they were unwilling, they were unwilling to submit themselves to the righteousness of God. Clearly, the Jewish people understood that God is holy, It's repeated throughout the scriptures. Clearly the Jewish people understood that God is perfect. If the Jewish people understand that God is holy, and if they understand that God is perfect, is that an incomplete understanding? No, that's, that's true. But what happens? What happens when an unholy person comes in contact with a holy God? What comes in contact when a person understands and sees the perfect standard of righteousness that's expected, and then you fall short. That's the very definition of sin. What do you do when you know that God wants something that you're unable to provide, namely perfection? For many people, what they do is they dumb down the standard. Then they go, well, clearly God doesn't really require perfection. He only requires that you do the best that you can with what you have. But that's just simply not true. And the way that God deals with the problem of not being able to do the best that you can is to provide one person who not only just simply does the best that he can, but he arrives at God's standard of perfection. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And this is why Jesus is the gate. And this is why Jesus is the door. And this is why Jesus is the good shepherd. And this is why Jesus repeatedly says, everyone who came before me is a thief and a liar and a robber. And so number two, the Jewish people sought to establish their own righteousness. Now imagine a person says, I can't be perfect. Well, what can you be? Well, I guess I can be the best that I can be. Clearly, the Jewish people understood. So what happens when a person decides to sign up for God's standard and fails? You create your own standard. And, and the standard of perfection is substituted for rituals, for ceremonies, for keeping rules. And regulations. You create a standard and you try to live up to your own standard. And the Jewish people would use a combination of rituals and ceremonies and keeping the law and doing good deeds. And they felt certain, they felt certain that if they could simply do their best. That God would save them. Just like some of your family and friends. If I just do my best. If I do my best. If I go to church when I can. If I care about people when I can. If I read my Bible when I can. If I'm involved in religious ritual when I can. So Paul reasons they're ignorant of God's righteousness. The Jewish people sought to establish their own righteousness. And number three, the Jewish people would not submit to the righteousness of God. And what is the righteousness of God? Is it the perfect standard? In a way, yes. And in a way, no. The righteousness of God. God, Paul claims, is Jesus. Jesus is the standard. Jesus is the measure. Jesus is the sum and the substance of righteousness, of perfect holiness and righteousness. Paul claims that God sent Jesus to be our righteousness. And so God sacrifices his own son in order to satisfy his perfect standard of holiness and righteousness. Think about what Paul is saying. The Jewish people and the Jewish nation as a whole weren't indifferent to God's righteousness. That would be wrong. It It would be wrong to think that the Jewish people were indifferent to God and indifferent to the scripture and indifferent to the prophets and indifferent to the prophecies. That wouldn't just simply be true. They cared about all of those things. But they sought a righteousness by their own effort. Every cult, every world religion, a 
appears ignorant of God's standard and method of justification. And so Paul and Peter and John explain over and over and over again that a person is made acceptable to God by faith in Jesus Christ. And you see, this is what's interesting, again, about people who are involved in all kinds of religious activities. When you look at them and you see them, you go, hey, these people aren't indifferent. In order for a cult to thrive, it has to elevate Man, it has to humanize God. It has to rationalize sin. It has to demonize grace. And it has to tell little lies about God. Little lies that become big lies. Well, what kind of lies? You know, that God isn't really as holy as the Bible lets on. That he really isn't as righteous as the Bible lets on. They have to tell lies about his nature. That he isn't really a trinity. They have to tell lies about his son. That that Jesus isn't really the second person of the trinity deity. Fully God and fully human. They have to tell little lies that he's the spirit brother of Lucifer or that he's the archangel Michael or that he's an ascended master. That he is a a human being who has somehow reached a, a, a state of perfection. They have to lie about his word. And that's the reason why Satan is called the father of lies. Satan constantly appears in the scripture saying, did God really say that? Did God really mean that? And for the person who says, well, what are we going to do with Jesus? Well, look, if you have to insist on having a Christ, just make sure that whatever Christ you have, you also trust yourself. You trust your good works. You trust your religious requirements. And so Satan will question God's word. And then deny God's word. And then substitute God's word. And then replace it. With an assertion of his own. The Bible. Doesn't remain silent on this issue. Of blindness. To the truth. Paul talks about it in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 18. He says their closed minds are full of darkness. They are far away from the life of God because they have shut their minds and hardened their hearts against him. In Jeremiah chapter 5 verse 4 we read, Then I said, but what can we expect from the poor? And the ignorant, they don't know the ways of the Lord. They don't understand what God expects of them, unquote. Micah 4.12, but they do not know the Lord's thoughts or understand the Lord's plans. These nations don't know that he is gathering them together to be beaten and trampled like bundles of grain on a threshing floor, unquote. How could they not know?
that there's a heaven? How could they not know that there's a hell that has to be avoided at all costs? How could they not know that there's a judgment awaiting people who embrace self-righteousness? And so the Jewish people sought self-salvation through religion. And anyone and everyone who seeks self-salvation through religion is going to be forever disappointed. Many Jewish people felt that God would never, would never, they would never reject them if they were just simply following the rules, if they were simply following the regulations that were given by God and Moses. How could he? How could God reject them? After all, they were religiously better than the Gentiles. But is that the standard? Is the standard, I'm way better than the person sitting next to me, or in front of me, or behind me? The standard has never been the person in front of you, or in back of you, or to the left of you, or to the right of you. The standard has always been the person who's seated at the right hand of the Father. In Mark's gospel, we read, You hypocrites, Isaiah was prophesying about you when he said, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far away from me. Their worship is a farce, for they replace God's commands with their own man-made Teachings, Jesus said that they were following man-made rules and regulations. And all the while, they weren't building a highway to God. They were building a freeway away from God. For the person who says, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm just fine. I don't need Christ and I don't need Christianity. The writer of Proverbs replies, In Proverbs chapter 30, verse 12, quote, There is a generation that are pure in their own eyes, and yet they have not been washed from their filthiness. There's a generation that thinks dirty is clean and impure is pure. And again, the biggest lie, the biggest lie, the biggest lie ever is the belief that you can be saved apart from Christ, apart from grace, apart from faith, apart from the gospel. And the most simple way to say this is that the nation of Israel refused to accept Jesus Christ, who's God's righteousness. But the same is true for any other religious person, Catholic, Hindu, New Age, fill in the blank. People can be sincere. Muslims and Mormons, filled with zeal 
filled with passion. But zeal and passion require something else. Faith and confidence in the lordship of Jesus Christ. You can be passionate. You can be sincere. And you can be sincerely wrong. Most of you know that. I heard the story of of a couple. This is back in the 1890s, 1900. They were traveling that stretch of train tracks that that extended all the way from St. Louis and went to the through the plains coming towards Colorado and there was a vast gigantic arctic front and snowstorm that just blanketed that part of the United States. And this young woman was with her young child. And she said to the conductor as he would come by, is this my stop? Is this my stop? And the conductor said, lady, don't don't worry. Don't you worry. I'll make sure that you get off on the right stop. I'll make sure that you get off on the right stop. And the conductor was so certain because the train would stop at at specific places. It had one stop and two stops and he had traveled this road over and over and over again. But he was unaware that the train had stopped at at the water supply and at the coal supply and he miscalculated and the train came to a stop in the middle of nowhere and the lady said, is this my stop? And he said, yes, ma'am, this is your stop. And she got out and she sat on the bench and the train pulled away And three days later, they found her frozen solid, clutching her baby on the place where she was told to exit. The conductor was horrified. It was never, ever his intention to send her into the cold so that she would die. And I suspect that many of your family and many of your friends, it was never their intention to send your family or send your friends into the darkness and into the cold. But you know, you know in your heart it's possible to be sincere and to be sincerely wrong. Paul points out that Israel's condition was marked by three things. Number one, ignorance. Number two, self-effort. But ignorance and self-effort would result in the third thing, which was failure. And so look at verse 4. Are you willing to tell the truth? Look what Paul says. He says, for Christ, for Christ, for Jesus, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Jesus is the end of the law for righteousness. By the way, the word translated end is the Greek word telos. You know that word. If you were ever a kid and you ever grew up and you had a telescope, Telos, a telescope, comes from that word. It means to see at the end or to come to the end. The idea being, what do you see when it comes to the full and final fruition? When you look at the law, when you look at the law, where is it supposed to take you? What is supposed to be its end? 
Paul is making one of the most remarkable statements that have ever been made in the New Testament. This statement is largely ignored or misunderstood even by Christians. Paul is saying that Jesus, Jesus is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Let me put it to you another way. Jesus is the one who puts an end, telos, to the human beings who long or seek righteousness by keeping the law or keeping a religious standard. Did Jesus really fulfill the Old Testament law? Remember, the law of Moses was given to the nation of Israel, not to Christians. The law was given to the nation so that they would know how to please God, so that they would know how to worship God, so that they would know how to relate to one another. And some of the laws were given to show Israel how to worship. And some of the law was given to the nation to keep them distinct from the surrounding nations. The laws of clothing, the laws of food... We're meant to keep them distinct so that they wouldn't engage in the immoral activities. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 23, Paul writes, But before faith came, we were kept under the law, guarded. We were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed, Galatians 3.24, therefore the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. But for many people, the law isn't a tutor to bring you to faith. For many people, they've decided to homeschool. And don't get me wrong, homeschooling is not wrong. I'm using this in an illustration in a very specific way. So hear the rest of the illustration. If in the homeschooling program, you use the law to take you to a place other than Christ and other than righteousness and other than confidence and other than faith in Jesus, you've learned the wrong lesson. That's the idea. In Galatians 3.25 it says, but after faith has come, we're no longer under the tutor. That means under the law. Ephesians 2.15, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace that he might reconcile both to God. And when he's talking about both, he's not just talking about sinners to God. He's talking about the reconciliation that takes place between Jew and Gentile as they are both one in Christ. Jesus ended the law in that he is the object to which the law pointed. Jesus ended the law in that he fulfilled and completed it. Jesus lived under the law, kept it perfectly, sinless, obeyed every rule, every regulation, and ends the law so that he might destroy the penalty and the condemnation of the law. By taking sin upon himself. Jesus is himself the righteousness of God. 
Does this mean that the Mosaic law is not binding for Christians? And the answer is exactly right. The Mosaic law is not binding on the Christian. So then what law do we follow? Lawlessness? No. We follow the law of Christ, it says in Galatians 6.2. We do everything that Jesus asks us to do. Do you realize that nine of the ten commandments in the New Testament are repeated? that nine of the ten Old Testament commandments are repeated in the New Testament. Which one do you suppose is excluded? Which one has been carefully left out? It's the law of the Sabbath and keeping the Sabbath. James, the brother of Jesus, saw the law of Moses as a single, singular unit. In James chapter 2, verse 10, he likens it to a chain or a necklace that are bound together. And if you break one link, the whole chain becomes broken. Either all of it applies or none of it applies And if Christ fulfilled some of it, but not all of it, which part still applies? The laws of kosher, the laws of sacrifice, the laws of the Sabbath? There was a rabbi who wrote to a young man who converted to Christ. He wrote, quote, The basic question about religion is how to elevate man and bring him into a closer relationship with God, unquote. In other words, the rabbi's view of the purpose of religion was to elevate man, not change him. He writes, we believe that God revealed to us in the Torah, that's the law of Moses, how he wants us to live so that we can be in harmony with his divine purpose. Our role and religious purpose is to obey God's laws. To love him and obey him. He wrote, quote, We exercise our free will by proper intention and through having done the good deeds are elevated so that it becomes progressively easier and more natural to continue to do good and resist evil, unquote. And it sounds so sane. But what the rabbi is suggesting in order to have a right relationship with God You have to work at it. You have to work at it and you have to keep working at it until you get it right. But John Henry Jowett got it right when he said, Law says do. Grace says done. D.L. Moody put it this way. The law tells me how crooked I am. And grace comes and straightens me out. That's the point. Jesus is the beginning, the middle, and the end. This is why Luke writes in Acts chapter 4 verse 12, there is Salvation and no one else. There is no other name given under heaven for people to be saved. Paul loved the Jewish people. He loved them. 
and was willing to pray for them. That deep and sincere concern should be all of our concern. By the way, you can tell a lot about a person by what they think about the Jewish people. Do they express a deep love for and concern for Israel's salvation? We admire religious zeal, but we reject zeal that isn't informed by biblical truth. Ignorance of the Bible is sad and regrettable, but it's easily remedied by simply becoming familiar with what the Bible says. And that's why we do what we do. This is why we encourage Bible study. This is why we know that just simply coming to church on Sunday isn't going to give you the foundation that you need in order to understand what the Bible says. This is why there's men's groups and and women's groups. This is why there's student ministries. We live in a world that is looking for a reason To reject the gospel. And Paul has no patience for those who embrace a false righteousness. Or the attempt to gain personal righteousness apart from Christ. And apart from the gospel. Dave Brees writes quote. No message is more viciously attacked by the cult promoters of our present world. Than the gospel of grace. The grace of God. Those who would promote slavish religious systems are infuriated at the gracious offer of Jesus Christ to bring his life into the sin-darkened soul and do it without any form of payment. It is absolutely maddening to the professional religious promoters that God saves individuals by grace and grace alone, unquote. And so we pray. We pray for Israel and the nations. We pray for our family and friends. That's part of the message. Are you willing to pray? But there's more. Are you willing to expose the lie? And there's a little bit more. Are you willing to tell the truth? Are you willing to pray? Are you willing to expose the lie? Are you willing to tell the truth? We pray because we know that the fight is a spiritual fight. We pray because we know that there's a darkness that surrounds the people that we love. There are dark blankets that need to be lifted. We pray because prayer defeats the devil. We pray because prayer saves the sinner. We pray because prayer humbles the proud. Prayer Restores the backslider. Prayer strengthens the saint. Prayer sends laborers into the field. Because sometimes your family and your friends, they just simply won't hear from you. 
but they might hear from me or someone else in your family. It could very well be that you are the answer to someone's prayer as you show up in a dark moment and you lift your eyes and you tell people the truth about Jesus. Prayer imparts wisdom. It bestows peace. It reveals the will of God. What does God want? This is what Jesus says. Jesus says that he wants everyone everywhere to turn from their sin and to turn to him. This is why Jesus himself pleaded with the religious leaders. Unless you believe that I am who I say that I am, you will likewise perish in your sin. And so this is what caused the brave apostles to go into the four corners of the world with a message of hope, with a message of truth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we don't want to undermine or undervalue the significant spiritual battle that we're in. Lord, we know that no one comes to the Father unless they're drawn by the Holy Spirit. We understand that no one will hear the message unless they hear it with ears that have been prepared by you. A preparation that involves coming to grips with sin and the need for salvation and the possibility of forgiveness and the reality of hope that comes in Christ. And so, Heavenly Father, we collectively begin to think about the people we care the most about. Lord, you know who they are. You hear all of the names that we're thinking about right at this very moment. And Lord, we pray. We pray that you would strengthen the saints and that you would send forth the laborers with the message of hope that they would hear the gospel, that they would receive the truth and believe it with all of their heart. And Heavenly Father, I pray even now for that person, empty, dark, alone. Lord, I pray that they would cry out to you, that they would confess their sin, that they would be willing to forsake their sin, and that they would embrace Jesus as Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name. Let's stand.
with the demand.